Welcome to the Friday Five, a series in which we cover five stories in health and science research over the previous week that you may have missed. There are plenty of controversies and ethical issues in science, and we get into many of them in our online magazine. But there are also lots of stories to be excited about, and this news roundup is focused on scientific work to give you a therapeutic dose of inspiration headed into the weekend. First up in the Friday Five, I have a confession to make. I am a lifelong Mets fan. I sometimes look back and wonder if my time watching the Mets, following them, and most of all complaining about them could have been better spent on other activities, especially over the many seasons where they've had huge payrolls and yet still managed to lose most of their games. Despite all the aggravation that our teams can cause, psychologists at Anglia Ruskin University recently found that making time to go to sports events in person is associated with small but significant benefits, such as more satisfaction with life and less loneliness both of which have been linked by previous research to better health outcomes. Other studies have also looked specifically at the same effect of watching sports in person and had come to similar conclusions as the more recent one. But the new study is the first to explore all different kinds of sports, including both the amateurs and the pros, and had a larger sample with over 7,000 people, ranging from teenagers to people in their 80s. The researchers got high-level information on demographics, like people's age, how the participants were doing financially, and whether they had a job. And then they controlled for these factors to see the true effect of the in-person sports watching. I talked with Dr. Helen Keyes about this study. Dr. Keyes is the lead author, and she's the head of the School of Psychology and Sports Performance at Anglia Ruskin. She told me about her approach for controlling for these other factors. We found that a lot of the work that had looked at attending live sports hadn't looked at these measures at all. They might touch on gender, but I wasn't confident that they could explain the well-being effects as separate from gender, age, income level. So what we wanted to look at was, were there any well-being effects above and beyond anything that could be explained by income, age, gender, those other things? So why would watching sports in person yield all of these benefits? The explanation could be rooted in how watching sports with your fellow fans can foster feelings of group identity and social interaction. Despite all my complaining about the Mets over the years, one of my best memories from childhood is going to my first Mets game with my grandmother. And when my family moved from the north down to Nashville, going to the minor league Nashville Sounds games and rooting along with my fellow Nashvillians probably helped me get over their draws and various other culture shocks. But for the most part, I've watched sports on TV at home. It'd be nice if that's improved my life satisfaction and well-being and provided other benefits besides the way the dent in my couch gives the nice lived-in look to my den. It's very unlikely that we would have seen those well-being effects just from watching sport on TV. You might get that effect that I was just talking about, the, the basking in reflected glory. If your team wins, that might be really nice. But these measures around reducing loneliness are, are very unlikely to happen when you're watching TV at home. Yeah. You can hear the disappointment in my voice there at the end, but her explanation does really make sense. I also asked Dr. Keyes if the findings might relate to the sense of awe that can be instilled when watching athletes perform at incredibly high levels, since some previous research has connected frequent feelings of awe to higher well-being. It's, it's, it's that feeling of, of the sense of the sublime that we you can't predict when it's going to happen, but it, it, it often happens when listening to uh, professional music or watching professional sports. It, it's almost what some people would describe as a religious experience. It's the sense of the sublime washes over you it lifts you, it's almost euphoric. That's a beautiful thing to watch. And I suppose that's more likely to come about watching elite sports. I imagine watching your amateur football team or baseball team. 
But we should ensure it changed the value of getting involved in rooting on the local amateurs, Dr. Keyes added. What we might be likely to look at is whether it's that kind of community feel. So the local sports where you probably would would see the same faces again and again and you'd know people and feel part of the community. That might be key to that metric around reducing loneliness. In their paper, the Anglia Ruskin researchers even speculated that governments might want to give discounts on tickets so more people can attend these events. So they're happier and healthier and less likely to end up racking up big hospital bills. Of course, fans can go overboard with evidence provided by the Jets Killed Carl episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm. And more research is needed to see if people get similar benefits from going to other group events besides sports. I'd really like to look at whether attending a live music event would have the same effect. Is it is it just being part of a crowd here for a common purpose, for a shared goal? Or is there something about that competitive element that, that ties us all together? We're on the same team here. I'm not sure which which effect is, uh, is causing the, the, the good uh, well-being measures here. Another important factor, Dr. Keyes said, will be to explore whether some of the effect is coming from people just being active enough to get off the sofa and see a game in person. It's really, really interesting uh, to look at whether phys- like physical activity will have impacted on sense that life is worthwhile, life satisfaction, loneliness, and that's not something we included in our analysis. Next up in the Friday Five, it may seem right now like AI's most important use is dreaming up 20 different tasty meals based on the random ingredients in your fridge. But University of Michigan researchers have a reminder this week that AI isn't just about GPT-4. They've made an AI system called Deep Glioma that can assess brain tumors and identify the tumor's genetic mutations in under 90 seconds, with an accuracy of over 90%. The Michigan researchers collaborated with other neuroscientists at NYU and the University of California, San Francisco. In their study, published in Nature Medicine, they looked at over 150 patients with the deadliest and most frequently occurring type of brain tumor called diffuse glioma. There are a number of different types of diffuse gliomas, but it can take weeks for doctors to run the existing tests to figure out which type a patient has. Another issue is that access to these tests for many patients is limited to begin with. These challenges in getting test results can make it hard to know what surgery option to pursue. For example, patients with a particular type of glioma, astrocytomas, get about five more years of life with tumor removal compared to other glioma types. The new AI is able to figure out the subtype in real time while the human surgeons operate on a patient through a new optical imaging approach combined with AI's analytic power that's fueled by its deep neural networks. Because the AI can make getting to a diagnosis easier, the researchers hope it will lead to more patients participating in clinical trials for developing new treatments for diffuse gliomas. As of now, fewer than 10% of people with glioma diagnoses volunteer for such trials. Next up, in recent years, researchers have focused on LSD as a potential treatment for depression and anxiety. Now, a team of scientists is testing a new form of LSD that doesn't cause hallucinations, with the idea that it could lead to similar benefits for mental health without the side effects. About 20% of people in the U.S. have mood disorders at least once over the course of their lives. Many antidepressants, like Prozac, are available, working to boost certain brain chemicals like noradrenaline and serotonin that may be helpful to some, but they can also cause indigestion or dizziness that results in people discontinuing them. LSD seems to be useful as a treatment, but use of LSD for this purpose is limited because clinical supervision is needed to make sure patients can cope with the intensity of the hallucinations. 
Now, as described in Cell Reports, the research team from Carleton University, Medical College of Wisconsin, a company called Better Life Pharma, and the University of California at San Francisco have shown that the altered form of LSD doesn't seem to cause hallucinations. First, they found that the altered form, called 2BRLSD, affected some molecules in the brain that regular LSD does not, and it affects a particular brain receptor to a lesser degree than hallucinatory drugs. Then they watched closely for a certain type of head twitching that mice are known to do when in the grips of hallucinations, usually cheese raining from the sky, and found that 2BRLSD didn't cause the head twitching. Another important finding was that this adjusted form of LSD didn't affect a certain receptor that's been linked to unwanted effects related to heart function. Yet more testing showed that in both test tube neurons and the actual mice, 2BRLSD led to an increase in neuroplasticity, which can help with adjusting to stressors. And in fact, the mice treated with 2BRLSD were better at coping with stress in the lab. The next step for this treatment is clinical trials in people to show that it's safe and effective. Next up in the Friday Five, more research on the health benefits of exposing yourself to the cold, this time with a study in Czech soldiers ages 19 to 30. As reported in BMJ Military Health, 49 soldiers were split into two groups, and for eight weeks, one group was exposed to freezing conditions, while the other group went about their normal activities without any deliberate cold exposure. Specifically, the soldiers got into freezing cold water up to their necks once per week and took cold showers for half a minute five days per week. At the end of the eight-week period, the ones that got the regimen of cold had notable declines in their perceptions of their own anxiety based on their own self-reports, compared to their answers on this questionnaire before the cold exposure. Plus, there were big drops in the soldiers' abdominal fat, as well as increases in how satisfied they were with their health, which could be related to having less belly fat, and with their sexual satisfaction. The advantage of doing this research in the military is that the researchers know more about the participants than is typical in the general population. Interestingly, though, the female soldiers did not see the same reductions in belly fat as the male soldiers, and the reason for this isn't known. On a personal note, after taking lots of five-minute-long freezing showers over the past few months, it's a relief to think I might be able to get some of the benefits with just 30 seconds. Of course, more research is needed to see how these findings carry over into people who aren't in the military and how much of the benefits might be attributable to the placebo effect. We started this week's Friday Five with awe-inspiring sports, and we'll end with awe in children. New research published in the journal Psychological Science shows that the behavior of kids may be improved when they get to have experiences that are awe-inspiring. The sense of awe involves being exposed to something so large and vast that it makes us feel relatively small and part of something larger than ourselves. It was known that kids form a sense of self at about age five, and the research team from the universities of Amsterdam and California, Berkeley, studied 159 kids aged 8 to 13 to see if they were capable of feelings of awe, and if such feelings might generate the same kinds of positive behavior that awe can lead to in adults. After being shown one of three movie scenes that seemed likely to be awe-inspiring, these children counted many more food items for giving to refugee children who were in need compared to other kids who'd watched less inspiring film clips. In another task, many more of these awe-struck kids donated their reward for participating in the study, tickets to a children's museum, to the refugee children. In a second part of the research, kids watching awe-inspiring movies were found to have an increase in their respiratory sinus arrhythmia, or RSA, which refers to how well a branch of the nervous system controls breathing and heart rate, which scientists believe may lead to better emotional regulation. That closely mirrors how awe experiences have been shown to improve RSA in adults. 
And this second sample of children, like the first, gave their movie tickets away more often than the control group kids, although they didn't take off more food items for the refugee kids for some reason. Even so, the researchers concluded that kids as young as eight can indeed have awe experiences, and that these feelings can cause them to be more generous and considerate of others. The research team is now looking to study awe in even younger kids. As always, you can find links to each study I've discussed this week in the show notes. And please check out the Leaps.org magazine online, where you can learn about the latest and most important challenges and developments in science, such as this week, an article on how scientists and dark sky advocates are teaming up to flip the switch on light pollution. Overall, the Leaps.org platform looks at innovations through the lens of rational optimism. You can find out what to be concerned about, but we also tell you which scientific breakthroughs are giving reason for excitement. Thanks for listening to the Friday Five, and have a great weekend.